You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. This is a special episode of the Hashtag FemSquire series, where I'm going on the road to interview fierce female attorney business owners all over the country. In this episode, I sat down with New York business and real estate attorney Jessica Sanchez, who tells her origin story of becoming an attorney, starting her own business, and how she pounded the pavement as a single mother and one-income household to get clients, keep overhead down, and make a profit. Hear how and why Jessica runs this one-woman show to provide a ten of service to her clients, minimize management, and focus on balancing her family and personal time while still paying diligent attention to her business. She's really someone who has it all. She shares mistakes she's made, what works for her, what doesn't, including how she learned to set competitive prices, set standards for collecting fees, and manage her business to be profitable. Plus, get Jessica's advice to you if you're an attorney and you're thinking of starting your own law firm. Where did you go to college and what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Sure. Uh, I went to undergrad. I was uh, actually at two different schools. So I spent, um, I got my degree from the University of Pennsylvania. Um, but my junior year, I spent the entire year abroad in Italy, in Bologna, Italy, and um, did not leave there until my visa expired and left kicking and screaming. So that was my undergrad experience. Um, and I loved every minute of it. So what was your major in? International relations. And I minored in Latin American studies. So I thought um, I thought that I was going to find some type of work with the UN. Um, I ended up taking two years off, but I just kind of I finished law school. I started at the University of Miami. Um, I thought because that was the gateway of the Americas, that was a very natural place for me to get my legal education. Um, and I thought that that's where I was headed, but I started law school in 2001. So August of 2001 was, you know, when I first arrived in Miami, September of 2001 was a very memorable time. Um, and I, at that point in time decided I wanted to come back home. Um, so I actually transferred back up here. I came to New York, um, over the course of the summer, and I finished at Hofstra on Long Island. So I ended up commuting, living here in Westchester, commuting out to Long Island every day, and also working in the city in Midtown uh, three or four days a week. So did you always know that you wanted to do something with international relations? I always knew I wanted to do something that involved um, multicultural experiences. So how exactly that was going to fit into whatever I wanted to do for a living, I wasn't quite sure. But one, I'm, I'm very um, people-oriented. I'm not a recluse. I like to be around people. I, I enjoy meeting people from different walks of life. So definitely something that was interactive. Um, at one point in time, I thought I wanted to be a psychologist. And then I took a psychology class my first year of college. And I said, yeah, no, thanks. Um, <laughs> I think that happened to me too. <laughs> and then, you know, I, I didn't know where, where my world was going to take me. I didn't know if I was going to go into business or politics or government or whatever. Um, and then, you know, it just seemed like a natural segue to get your legal education, regardless of what you end up doing. Legal education can, you know, be very useful in any number of different professions or industries. So um, I kind of felt like that was a safe bet. So when you went to law school, did you feel like you loved it? 
Or did you hate it? I hated it. I hated law school, too. I really, really, really hated law school. Well, have you ever heard this expression that if you hated law school, you'll love practice? And if you love law school, you'll hate practice? No, I never heard that expression. But I have heard if you live like a lawyer when you're a law school student, you will live like a law school student when you're a lawyer. Uh, (laughs) That does make sense. So I I took my student loans out very cautiously. Um, but, But that that makes sense. I mean, the practice of law is completely different than, you know, what it is to be in academia and what, you know, studying cases and briefing them and, and, you know, going through the Socratic method in class. And it's, it's just a very different animal. Well, I don't know about you, but when I was in undergrad, I didn't really study that hard. You know, I did the, I did the minimum I had to do really to get A's and B's and I was satisfied with that. So when I went to law school, you couldn't do that. Right. You really had to yeah. study a lot yeah. and you're there with people that are very competitive yes. and smart. So I, I learned that I really had to study. I'd never studied at any, at any time in my life, the way I studied in law school. Was that your experience? Uh, yeah, it was. And unfortunately, unlike you know, undergrad where, you know, you, your first year, you're like, wow, I'm independent. I'm 17, 18 years old. I'm out of my parents' house. This is so cool. I, you know, I I don't have homework, you know, maybe I have a midterm and a final and that's great. And if I screw it up, I get another semester, you know, nobody tells you, or if anyone told you, then, you know, I missed the boat, but nobody tells you that your first year of law school is your most important year of law school. And if you don't get it together, um, you miss out on all sorts of opportunities for, you know, on-campus interviewing and getting your summer, you know, experience, between your first year and your second year. And I just didn't, I was in Miami. I was getting used to, you know, the sunshine. So I didn't really focus um, the way that I should have that first year. I didn't take it necessarily as seriously as perhaps in hindsight I should have. So um, unfortunately, you know, that was a tough lesson to learn. And then when I transferred and came back up to New York, I was just a commuter student. I wasn't vested in making friends with anyone. I wasn't, I didn't care, you know, Long Island is not my territory. So I really didn't care to make friends, but I did at that point in time say, okay, I got it. I kind of screwed up a little bit my first year. I'm doing this. This is, this is career focused and I need to get myself together. So I wrote onto a law journal. I, you know, I did very well academically, but I did nothing other than go to class, pay attention to whatever I needed to do and get the freaking frack out of there. Um, and then I also started working. So I also kind of could see the practical application of, you know, what is the, the practice of law? And that's very different than when you're in an isolated bubble and you're just, you know, your Reese Witherspoon in yeah, <laughs> very different. trying to figure out how the heck you're supposed to navigate your first year of law school. So yeah, it, it, it was, it was a very different experience. It was not fun at all. I did not enjoy any minute of it, but I knew it was a necessary evil to get me to the next, you know, stop on my journey. Yeah. I didn't love it either. Um, I figured out too late too that you, if you wanted to get one of those summer jobs where you actually got paid a lot of money, I mean, at least at the time, you know, where we were all broke, it seemed like a lot of money and you had to basically have all A's and and then was at large firms and they basically hire those people when they graduate. So I kind of figured that out too late, but I'm actually glad that I didn't take that path because I don't think that was for me. I don't think I would have liked that. So when you were in law school, did you have an idea, you know, did you ever fixate on a a certain job you wanted or a certain employer that you wanted? 
No, I mean, I am very much a free spirit, right? So I, and I, although I am a planner and although I do like to have some foresight and, and have a plan, um, I also didn't want to, without really knowing, you know, I was the first one in my family to go to college. I certainly was the first one to go to law school. Um, so without knowing really what was out there, I didn't want to fixate on what, any one particular thing without really having a good sense of what options existed. So, um, I really didn't say, you know, I want to work for this employer or I want to work in this area of law. I also remember hearing a lot of people say, you really don't know, you know, you, it might sound sexy to say, I want to practice international law, but really there is no such thing. Well, right? I think I'm all Clooney. Mm, yeah. She's, well, you know, I didn't know who the heck she was right. back then. Yeah. She's yeah. That she's, she's got that that sex appeal going for her too. That makes it look like a, an amazing, you know, space yeah. to be in. But I, I knew I wanted to do something that involved the Americas. Right. Um, but that can mean so many different things. And yeah. I, I didn't know, you know, how that was going to evolve. And really what happened for me, I didn't go into that area at all because, and I've heard this with many people that kind of fall into a particular practice area thinking they're going to pursue one thing and then ending up getting a job somewhere in something completely different and ending up liking it or staying there for necessity because they couldn't get a job in yeah. the discipline they really loved. Um, I ended up working at a firm, a small firm in Midtown that was probably, you know, at, at its height was like 25 attorneys and it was, um, a family owned firm and it, it, the folk, the side that I was involved in focused on um, basically outside general counsel type work. So there were folks there that worked in intellectual property, employment law, um, civil litigation, uh, capital markets, trusts and estates. So they touched upon a lot of things, but all that focused on representing businesses. And I through that experience, I did some immigration work. I worked on um, some maritime law. I, uh, my clients or the clients of the firm um, came from all over the country, uh, all over the world. So I got that flair, that international flair, but in the discipline of you know corporate law, commercial litigation, and anything that kind of touched upon it, and I loved it. So that's you know, that's kind of where I landed. And, um, I was happy with that. So it, like you that said, you know, I, I kind of don't think I would have enjoyed the path of, you know, going into the, you know, the, the big white shoe law firms. I think probably the same is true. Um, from, from my situation, I really loved where I kind of, you know, started my, my passion and, um, it worked out for me in the long run. And you shared with me when we talked before yeah. we started recording, you had shared with me that you were one of or or the only woman. I was. There, there was a there was a female named partner. Um, the the it was a family firm, so the firm actually had one side of it that did um, plaintiff side personal injury and medical malpractice. That was the father kind of side of the firm, and that female partner worked on that side of the firm and then on the corporate side, which is where I was. And that's, you know, just kind of how we, we named it, even though some people might dispute, you know, it's not technically corporate, but the other side that dealt that focused on businesses, um, you know, until almost the time when I left there, there were oftentimes no women there except for the support staff and myself. Um, so Did it people was, mistake you for support staff. 
Because uh, that's happened to me. If they did, I definitely corrected them. I can't. There's nothing that stands out in my mind of any incident where that was the case. I'm sure it happened. Um, but but I, I also am sure that I would have put them in their place. I'm sure you would have too. <laughs> <laughs> so you were there how long? I was there from, well, starting when I was in law school. I was there from 2002 through the end of 2013. Okay, so you so, were there for a while. Yeah. And then obviously there came a time when you decided that wasn't your place anymore. Yeah. Yeah, you know, there was, um, I started to get the itch. And I think everyone starts to get that itch. It's, you know, it's like the seven-year itch of marriage or whatever. But, you know, when you when you evolve from that little associate that just needs to be a sponge and keep her head down and take copious notes and just, you know, watch the the craft that so yeah. many uh, senior partners have and, you know, go to court and, you know, hold the bag and all that kind of stuff. And then you kind of evolve to a place where, you know, no one's marking up what you've done. No one's, you know, making sure that if you're on a call with a client, they're also there or, or you know, just asking you to do the research and they actually, you know, relay the information to the client. They start to give you the opportunity to do that. And then there comes a point where you're doing it without anyone asking anything and just assuming that you're taking care of it and you are it's like riding a bike you realize that yeah. the, the, the training the wheels training aren't wheels on can come off and you know there there came a time when I started to lift my head up and I started to do more of networking because I was thinking about generating business not just you know servicing our existing clients um and once I I got you know a flavor for that and started to realize that hey I'm the only person in this high rise in midtown on like 4th of July weekend and everybody asks us at the, in the Hamptons or at their summer home or whatever. And this is like a recurring situation and I'm the lowest paid person. <laughs> this doesn't work, you know? And, and yeah, that's and not how you want to live. No. And then I had several clients who would take me out to lunch or say something to me outside of the presence of anybody else from the firm. And they would, you know, make it very clear that they wanted me and only me on their files. And so the kind of the writing was on the wall. I had several clients intimate to me that if I ever left, that they would follow me. And I just started to get to thinking, and especially after I became a mom. And even though I had, a, I had it very good, I can't complain about, you know, the hours that I spent. I spent many, 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 many hours there, but comparatively speaking to any of my, you know, friends that were at larger firms, you know, I still came home at night, you know, yeah. um, and I still got weekends to be at home, even though I might've been in front of a laptop or on the phone or whatever, but, but I was home. And, um, I started to realize that, you know, there was a lot of opportunity cost and there was a lot that I was not going to be able to get back and that I really hit a ceiling, um, with respect to what I was going to be able to earn and that I was I was bringing in prospective clients and they were making it clear to me that they preferred to have me supporting their existing clients than trying to get my own because that was more cost effective for them. Right. And so I started to think to myself, this is, this is not the end of the line for me. I'm, this is not where I'm staying. I'm ready to go to the next level. I'm, you know, that hungry caterpillar. I'm ready to come out and, and be that butterfly, like you say, and spread my wings. And so, uh, towards the end of 2013 is when I decided, you know what, this is, this is my time. Uh, I, I went down, it was a cold time of year. It was probably like, you know, 
late November around um, Thanksgiving. And I just took a trip down to Florida by myself. And I just, you know, for the weekend, I just brought a whole bunch of books with me, like a lot of self-help books, a lot of women empowerment books. And I put my toes in the sand and I read and I came upon this um, chapter of a book that resonated with me. And it's um, the chapter of the book said, what would you do if you weren't afraid? One and of I, my favorites. I, and I, yeah. And I just said to myself, yeah, what would I, you know, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of anything. And, and I thought about it to myself because I didn't have anybody telling me, you know, there was no distraction in that moment, right? It was just me and the waves and the sun. And I thought to myself, if I were, if I wasn't afraid, I, I'd, get the hell out of this situation. I'd open up my own practice. I'd put one foot in front of the other and I'd do my own thing on my terms um, and live the way that that I want to. And so I, I flew back up and I started to make a plan of, you know, where I wanted to be and I started to save my money. Um, but then- How it, old were you then? I was 30. I was, I guess, in my mid-30s. Um, and I took two years off between undergrad and law school. So I was, you know, whatever that you ended started up a little bit later, I started a little bit later. I wanted to just take a breather, um, make sure that I wanted to invest in law school before I, I signed up for it. And then, and it was fine. I, you know, I partied for another two years in New York city. So it was great. I got that out of my <laughs> you system. Sold your oats. <laughs> you got that I, out of your I system. I needed to do it. And then, um, you know, at the time that I left this firm, I had three young children. I, I, I mean, and I'm talking about young. I mean, they were still in preschool. Two of them were still in preschool. Um, and, and I was in the process of getting divorced, or at least actually simultaneously I was getting divorced. I decided I'm going to wipe the slate clean and I'm going to just do everything on my terms. So I came back up to New York and I started to save, but then I just came to a point where I knew in my Heart of hearts, this is just, I was done. I was checked out. I was ready to move yeah. on. And I just gave notice. And I said, listen, you know, to my firm, I said, and they knew it was coming. And I just basically said, listen, you want me to stay on for six, at the end of the year, I'm happy to stay on. You want me to train somebody that's happy. You want me out tomorrow? That's fine too. Whatever you guys want to do, I'm cool with it. I'll, you know, I'm giving you notice. If you tell me, you know, go pound dirt and, and get out of my, <laughs> you know, turn off all my devices and, and tell me never to like show my face again, I'm happy to do that. Um, so that's what I did. And during the process, you know, as I kind of got to my, my conclusion of this is what I need to do and I need to do it now, all the while I was doing research, right? So people love to talk about themselves and, um, I would just, and I'm a people person and I took the train in every day and I would talk to tons of different people that I befriended along the way. I was on the same train, you know, the same commute every day for, you know, 10 plus years. So I met a lot of really interesting characters and I just would allow, and I met a lot of people along the way, other attorneys. Um, and I would just pick their brain without, without alluding to why, you know, I would just hear their war stories, hear their, you know, mistakes they made when they first started out and things they would do differently. I would listen to a lot of women, um, that, you know, had children or that went through divorces or, you know, whatever. And I just listened to their stories and I would just take notes mentally to say, okay, these are things to try to avoid. And these are things that are really inspiring and motivating. And so by the time I got to the place where I was like, I'm ready, I really was ready. It wasn't haphazard. Yeah. It wasn't that I just like, it had wasn't a moment. impulsive. It was not impulsive. It was, I, I had just, you know, the, the, the pot of water had boiled to the pot, you know, in, had boiled to the point where it was spilling over. It was, yeah. it was time. Yeah. Do you remember any of the advice you got? Like, was there one thing that just really resonated with you or there that was, you remember? There was one thing that it actually happened after I stuttered out on my own. So because I had such a varied experience 
um, in this firm and I could take so many different avenues to pursue. Um, I didn't really know when I started on my own how I was going to present myself to the world, how I was going to market myself when I had to give my elevator pitch, when I had to just tell people what I did in a nutshell, you know, one sentence, two sentences, how was I going to capture everything? Because I could do so many different things that I wanted to express that. So, you know, two different things, I guess, came to mind. One is that many other attorneys have told me, you got to find a niche and you know, you don't find a niche. You usually fall into a niche, right? Yeah. So that's not how that works. You can't like create what you want to pursue. It kind of just comes yeah. to you. Um, so that was, that was one thing that always stood, stood in the back of my mind. But then another thing was I started bounce in my first year, I was bouncing around a lot in trying to find my way, trying to, you know, there was a uh, talk at the time that I was starting that the, um, there was a wave of talk about immigration reform and that really interested me going back to my whole international background and speaking Spanish and, and this potentially was an opportunity for me to do very well financially and also feel really good about it. Right. But unfortunately, or fortunately, however you, you know, whatever your position yeah. is on that, that never happened. Right. So I, I, I spent a lot of time pursuing or gearing up to pursue, um, that practice area. And then I had tons of opportunities, which I um, decided ultimately to decline, but a lot of people were asking me to partner with them or to, you know, hang up a shingle with, you know, with them or, or, or somehow be under their umbrella. Um, and it would have required me to change my vision or change what was really important to me and perhaps pursue a practice area that wasn't really that exciting to me. And so somebody that is actually in the business world, who was in private equity and would work with young budding businesses all the time. That's what he did for a living was help, you know, nourish them, let them grow and then sell them off for a profit. Um, he kind of reminded me from the outside looking in saying, you need to make sure that you stay consistent with what you want um, so that makes the decision of so whether accepting something or not very easy, because if it's consistent with your vision and what you want, then you can consider it. If it's inconsistent, it's going to, for example, take you away from your children in a disproportionate way. Uh, it's going to pull you into something that you don't really find exciting. Then, then no, there'll be another opportunity. So, you know, you kind of have to have a, a strong stomach. And, um, understand that, you know, you're, you're not going to sell yourself short because in this particular instant, there's nothing presenting itself, but this particular opportunity. And maybe it's not paying what you think you're, you know, entitled to, or what you're worth, or it's not in a practice area that you really enjoy working in. You kind of have to yeah, hold tight. I mean, why go through the trouble to leave someplace to pursue your vision? Absolutely. Just to get sidetracked right. and end up someplace else that you don't want to be. And I think a lot of times when someone's offering, uh, you know, come and be of counsel right. or I'll, you know, do per diem work or whatever. I think you have to consider, are they doing that just for me for altruistic reasons right. or is it because they need no, something? It's always for them. Yeah. Always, 100% of the time. So, yeah. you know, it didn't work. And I got opportunities to, you know, work, uh, do litigation work. But then I'd have to, they, they wanted me to come inside the front. I'm like, this doesn't work for me. None of this works for me. Thank you. It feels really good to get all of these people so excited. You know, I actually got offered a, a, a position with a, a real estate um, 
management company that was going to pay well, but would have they would have owned me. And and at the time, like I said, I had three young children. It was really important to me to be present for my kids. And um, they would have required me to have one, two, three nannies. You yeah. know, and I'm like, no, that doesn't work for me. That doesn't. I'd rather be poor but present for my kids for the next year until I get myself going than have all this, you know, oodles and oodles of cash and my kids all need to go see a therapist. Yeah, and you, you have know? to pay. Yes, right. and they'll I'm be like, talk, talking about it. what a terrible mother you were exactly. when they're grown. So it, it took it took, it took a lot of guts to not succumb to that pressure when I was 100% financially responsible for my kids, you know, and thinking, like, how am I going to feed them? What am I going to do? You know, I never really freaked out, but I did feel tremendous pressure to to figure it out quickly. I haven't gone out on my own at some point in time and talking to other women who have done it, even men too. That's always the fear that they have is that what if this doesn't work? How am I going to get clients? What if I fail? And the embarrassment that would come from that. But it doesn't sound like you didn't even give yourself a moment to really have time to think about that. But I never had that. Even when people question, oh my God, you're getting divorced and you're starting it on your, are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm a thousand percent sure. It was a, it, there was no, I had so much confidence in this. There was just no opportunity for doubt, for self doubt. That just, that never entered my mind. I just knew this was what I needed to do. I did not want to go work for somebody else. I did not want to, you know, change where I knew I, you know, what I wanted. This is, it's very achievable. You know, the practice of law, we're so lucky. We're so fortunate that you, we don't need a huge team, you know, some people. And the other thing too, is that I was very fortunate to have worked for a very relatively small firm because there are other people I've, I've met along the way, women who say, you know, I work in the city. I work downtown. I have a horrible commute. You know, I could never go on my own because they have six people beneath them who do so many different other tiers of work before it gets to their desk. They, they don't know, they don't know how, how yeah. to do it without two associates and a paralegal and an assistant. They just don't know anymore. Maybe, you know, because they've taken that path and that I was, you know, very scrappy and I was very, um, you know, I had, I wore a lot of hats. So to me, it was very natural, the transition. It was something I was already doing, but now it just, you know, the front door had my name on it, not somebody else's. And how long have you had your own practice now? Um, so I opened up, uh, it's probably about six years. And how long did it take you to start making money and feeling more comfortable with the money that you were making? Um, by the end of the first year, I made a respectable amount of money. Um, by the end and every year I, my numbers soared. So I, I very quickly was able to at least keep my head above water. Um, and then I would say by year three, I really turned the corner and, and was well on my way where I was no longer like, Ooh, this month might be a little iffy. I don't know if I can now it's like, okay, we've got our rainy day fund set aside. I know stuff is coming in. I don't, I can't say I have any steady clientele that pays a monthly retainer. That's going to pay my, my way every month. But now having now I'm a, I'm a known quantity, um, the phone, I don't have to, you know, the first year or two, I was like, you know, a politician kissing babies and, and shaking hands and going to every event possible and, and just throwing everything against the wall to see what would stick and just trying to make contacts, right? And just trying to get people to give you a shot. Now, people know I'm here. So now I don't need to do that anymore. I can if I want to and I need to to, 
stay relevant and present. People need to remember I'm around, but yeah, I don't have to do it on such a regular basis anymore. Now I'm having coffee with people that for, for me, six deals a year or, you know, I'm going to an event that somebody invites me to, but I'm not going to one of these like 250 plus maybe you'll get six business cards and make one decent contact type of events. So I would say like by year three, I was really kind of, um, in my stride and, um, you know, now I just have so many sources, referral sources that I really, like I said, I don't need to go out there and, and hunt as much. I'm not sitting on my laurels either, but I'm, I'm working. I'm filling. You've got your name out there. Yeah. Yeah. So you were, you had, you went to a different, completely different geographic area. Yes, I was in the city. And so I came up so to Westchester. You really did have I knew to nobody. hustle. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. I knew no one. And I didn't take any clients with me. I didn't ask to, I didn't try to, I didn't care to. Um, I'm very proud. I wasn't interested. I didn't want anyone to say, well, she took this or there to be a war, but I was like, listen, yeah, that's usually how it keep goes. All your client. I don't care. Keep. I have no, yeah, listen, it's all good. So what did you do? What were some of the things that you did right out of the gate to just hustle and get clients? Um, I went to a lot of events. So I, I found business associations in the area. I went to, I did a lot of lunch and learn. So one thing that was very low hanging fruit for me was real estate. And, you know, the transactions are very low paying, but there are so voluminous. So I just went to a lot of um, real estate related events. I made a lot of presentations in front of a lot of real estate agents. And, you know, fortunately, again, because I speak Spanish, that ended up being a very um, valuable thing for me because up here, there are not that many, there are some, but there are not that many attorneys who speak Spanish. And fortunately, there are a lot of first time home buyers that speak, um, predominantly Spanish or exclusively Spanish and prefer to have somebody represent them that speaks Spanish. So I started to get a large number of, um, clients in that particular area, um, very early on. And so speaking of like where you back into a niche, that's one of those things that yes. happened where I never thought that I would be practicing so much real estate, um, law. Now that probably, takes up about 40% of my practice while I'm not, you know, in court or doing all the other outside general counsel stuff. And, um, and that, that grew very, very quickly, but it just was, you know, just meeting a lot, a lot of people, just going to events, collecting those cards, doing the follow-up phone calls, um, going to events when there were CPAs, those are, um, accountants are very good referral sources for me. Other attorneys are very good referral sources for me that don't, you know, if our disciplines don't coincide. So I just kept on going out there and meeting people and just, you know, hoping somebody would give me a shot and they did and they liked it and they got good reviews and they'd give me another one and another one and so on and so forth. Do you remember when you got your first client? Were you like, Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I was really excited. I do. I do. Um, little, little things, but it just felt good. It was like, wow, my first check, it was like, you know, $800 or something. And I was like, damn straight. But you're like, it's all mine. (laughs) It's all mine. This is made out to me, my firm. This is very exciting. Yeah. It's a great feeling. It's very empowering. So something that a lot of people do when they're, when they're scared about making money is they sometimes have this urge to make their prices lower. Mm. Did you ever have that? 
in yeah in the beginning i was giving myself away a little bit because i the other thing too is i didn't know what price point i could ask for because i was in a different market right so and also if you're doing real estate that's you know you're not getting paid by the hour it's usually a flat fee on a transaction base and i had to kind of learn things a little bit the hard way so initially i was quoting a little too low and I wasn't asking for money up front. I'd say when we close, and then I realized how quickly I'd get burned. So I was like, okay, we're changing that policy. And then I'd ask for a couple of bucks up front, but it still wasn't enough where people had skin in the game that they felt like they were, you know, invested in whatever this was. So I ended up finding out that the, the sweet spot was half up front and half at the closing. So that's how I figured out. And then I kind of found out what other people charged and, um, you know, there are, there are always going to be people that charge less than me, but, um, that's okay. I'm not for everyone. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, well, I learned the hard way too. You set your standard, yeah. you know, that that's, that's my price. That's what I work for. And if you want to go somewhere else and that's fine too, we're not a good fit. Absolutely. And it was still, I'm still even today, but even then as well, it was much less than what I charged in the city. So, yes. you know, yeah. you have to understand that, you know, when you leave a certain market and like New York City is probably, you know, maybe L.A. is another area where, you're, you know, it's like the top of the top of the top. I can't charge that. Right. Yeah. Um, well, everything's more expensive. Than everything New York City. is more expensive. But also I don't have this. I don't have the overhead, so I don't need to charge that. Right. So I can still bring value to clients and and put food on my table um, without having to charge an exorbitant rate. So I just kind of I eventually found where it worked for me and and over time you know and obviously i i charge more uh every year and um people can take it or leave it and that's okay i'm, I'm yeah. cool with it i get it i'm not for everyone personality wise and 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 you know money wise and and i'm not a charity and so if that's not something that you know you feel is worth it or that you can afford then okay that, that, that we're not gonna work together so having no staff it almost gives you more flexibility to say no yes. because you don't have all this huge overhead. I don't because have that's that pressure. Another thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know, and I've experienced that myself because we have eight people that work for us and there's been a huge learning curve. Sure. And I think there definitely were times where I would take a client that I knew was going to be a huge headache mm. for various reasons. And I took the client because it was a big retainer right. and I absolutely regretted it. Because, you know, you got to keep that money coming and ju just to pay the rent. No, right. you know, not to get anybody rich, That's right. just to pay the rent just and to cover your costs. keep the lights yep. on. So, and I've done it both ways. When I first went solo, it was just me. I did everything. I was licking the envelopes. Right. I did everything. But sometimes I miss those days. I love it. And people have said to me, when are you going to scale your practice? When are you get, no, I don't, this is again, all back to, this is what I want. Now there could be somebody else that says, listen, I want to have a staff of five people. I want three offices in different cities. And then I want to sell it off. Rock on. Like, yeah. I, I'm not mad at you. That's fine. That's not what I want. What I want is to be very flexible. I don't want to have to take out more, you know, you know, insurance because I have some idiot that doesn't, you know, send out the right paperwork on a deadline that is going to cost me my tail because, you know, that that's just not worth it for me. I don't want to have to, um, you know, review things that other people may or may not be doing. No one's going to care yeah. about, you know, what level of detail they're paying attention to. And I see this all the time on the flip side of other, you know, transactions or even litigation matters that I'm working on. And I'm like, okay, I know I'm not dealing with the partner or I'm not dealing with, you know, the person that's really responsible for interfacing with the 
client and they're not giving this the level of care and attention that it deserves. And that's not my problem, but I don't want to have to deal with that. I don't want that headache. I also see, I, I see a lot of um, employer-employee dispute situations and I, I don't want that headache either. Yeah. I mean, also again, as someone who has eight employees, I can tell you that people management is not my forte. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just not really what I'm good at. It's not something I enjoy. So luckily I have a partner and he does most of that. That's awesome. But I totally get it. I totally get it when it's just you and you, there's nobody else to worry there about. Was another gentleman that I, I met along my way who is a solo practitioner and he's probably, you know, 25 years my senior in terms of how long he's been practicing um he said something very very smart and you know he said when, when I was first on, on my own and he was asking me if I expected to you know have staff etc and his comment was um and he just like an office sharing situation where it's you know six attorneys and one office suite and they have maybe one or two support staff people they all share that just you know literally do the licking of the envelopes or answering the phone kind of thing and he said, you know, early on in my practice, I decided that, um, you know, I had to decide whether or not I was going to manage my staff or manage my clients. Um, and I decided I wanted to manage just my clients. So I was like, oh, you know, that's a very smart way to put it. Um, yeah. And, and that's kind of how I come down. I just want to manage my clients. So I don't want to have to deal with managing my staff as to when they want to take off and when they want to, you know, call in sick and not do something that I'm relying on them to, you know, upon them to do. Um, I'd rather just... For now, you know, maybe that will change in the future. Right now, I'm very comfortable just being me, myself, and I. And and it's it's it, you know it's a pro and a con, but um, I make it very clear to to people that want to retain me. You know, especially if it's like a large litigation matter, I do if I need to draw upon colleagues. You know, if there's something that's going to take a lot of woman power and, and I need oh, I like a that woman support. power. Yes. <laughs> if I need a little extra support, I have resources to draw upon um, should that become necessary. But otherwise, it's just, you know, I'm flying solo. Well, I think it's always about managing expectations with clients. So Absolutely. I, I, that's smart that you lay that out right from the very beginning. Yeah. So it's not a surprise. Um so what would you say has been, you know, some of the mistakes you made early in the beginning that we could share with other people so they can avoid those? Sure. I mean, just, you know, kind of the things that I touched upon already. So just kind of letting um, too many opportunities potentially sway me into something that may not be consistent with my vision um, out of desperation or not knowing if I should, you know, if I'm missing a big opportunity. Um, so I kind of spun my wheels a little bit where I was considering too many different things that would have had me spread really thin. And I, I lost, you know, I wouldn't say like tremendous valuable time, but I lost a little time finding my way there. Um, but it also kind of was part of something that I had to go through in order to figure out yeah. where I was going to land. And then, um, you know, the other thing too is the, the price point stuff, you know, your people are always going to try to get something for nothing. Um, and one thing I probably did a lot of in the beginning is I, you know, what we do all day long, we give our advice, we give our know-how we give, you know, the practice of law. We've gone to law school and then we've practiced law. So what we can, you know, relate to somebody, in a 10, 15 minute conversation is us drawing upon our 10, 15, 20 years of experience and then, you yeah. know, delivering a message. So, um, I didn't charge for consults and I would spend, 
you know, an inordinate amount of time talking to people and counseling them and giving them my advice for free. Yeah. Uh, that's something that, um, I have learned to stop doing. So you would recommend that people charge for their consultations? Absolutely. Even if it's something de minimis that will be applied, you know, towards, you know, if they're retained down the line, but have them show up with money. Even if you're reviewing a bunch of papers, if you're, you know, coming in just to listen to their story for 15 minutes, charge a consult fee upfront. Don't waste your time if they're not prepared to pony up some money, because honestly, there are tons of people, family and friends as well, um, that will always try to get your advice, but, but you're paying law school loans. You've spent three years of your life, um, amassing this information, amassing this knowledge and, and it's your experience and that's where your value is. So why give it away? Yeah. I always joke it and it's really not a joke, but I always say, if I'm not going to make any money, I'm going to do it on my couch. Yeah. I'm not going to do it at work. Absolutely. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I think a lot of us as women, um, probably that's, you know, we're naturally, um, kind of, you know, nurturers and we want to help. And sometimes, uh, I at least can see myself in this bucket is like, I, I try to help too much where I'm not helping myself. I'm helping the other person, but I'm not helping myself. And, um, that's definitely a mistake that I've made that I think that, you know, a lot of, a lot of women going out on their own probably also do. And, and they need to be more assertive about that. I, I, I love working with a lot of women, um, entrepreneurs, and I find that although they may be super smart and super talented and really good at what they do, many of them, not all, but many of them also lack the confidence to um, negotiate things for themselves or advocate for themselves. And it, it just, it blows my mind. I don't get it. I don't get it because we can be um, so strong about different things in our lives, but when we're advocating for ourselves, um, you know, they become meek or they become intimidated by a boisterous male counterpart, whether it's their landlord or, um, you know, a potential business advisor or, or whatever. Um, they kind of let them get away with negotiating something that's not in their interest. And I just, I, I don't get it. And I try my very best to, um, counsel them. Women seem to suffer from that more than men. I'm not going to say men don't because I've seen examples of men I have who too. have a hard yeah, time with yeah. that. But do you, what's your opinion about that? Do you feel like that's something that's, is it the way we're raised? It's, is it just something that's ingrained in our culture? Yeah, to some extent, I think there is a tremendous movement among young, you know, with, with women in general right now. So I don't necessarily think that, you know, the generations that are coming up are going to face or, or feel, you know, the same way, but sure. I mean, you know, we, as a society, we are definitely taught to be, you know, seen, but not heard sort of a thing. And even just in the way I could say, you know, as a young associate, you know, I would sometimes bring the coffee. Um, I sat next to the folks that were talking and I just took a lot of notes. And so we're kind of taught to just, sit there and I've actually literally been told to sit there and look pretty and I wanted to punch somebody in the face when they oh said my that. God. But yeah, was it, it was, an attorney who it told was you an that? Attorney. It was an attorney and I, yeah, that was a, that was a, I had some choice words for him, but I chose to swallow them <laughs> to keep my job at the time. But I, know, I would but isn't now. It terrible, isn't yeah. it terrible that you have to swallow it? I, and I struggle with that too. Not so much anymore because I own my own business, but, but you know what? There are times when you'll have a man 
and this isn't a man hating show by any means, but you know, that expression mansplain, try to yeah. mansplain yeah. something. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like, okay, I have this dialogue in my head. Should I just keep quiet right now and not start a fight? Right. Or <laughs> do right. I say something? Yeah. Yeah. Do I want to bring the drama on for purposes of, you know, letting them know what time it is? And I've done it. I mean, I have done it. And it has created a storm. I mean, nobody knew it was coming. Um, and I've put my foot down and I've said things to people in ways that they were never spoken to or, you know, expected from somebody that was far junior to them. And then also a female. How oh my God. Um, so, but I think that women, a lot of us, not everyone, but I think a lot of us are, are, you know, kind of groomed that way, not intentionally. And so when they are in a position where now they're, you know, going out on their own, whether it be whatever type of business, um, and they're faced with an abrasive personality, they're not sure how to handle it, or they just kind of, um, react to it by acquiescing by, by, by giving into it because they don't have that type of personality. They're not strong, you know, vocally or, you know, they, maybe this is not their first language either. I, yeah. I find that a lot of people are also intimidated when they're not speaking in their native language or it's not their native culture. Right. So they're not really very confident about just the way the systems work. Um, and they allow people to kind of bamboozle them and tell them this is how it needs to get done. And then they come to see me and I'm like, Oh, uh-uh, that's not how it needs to get done. We're going to do it this way and that way. And, like, <laughs> um, and then they're like, wow, really? Okay. That's great. So, I think that a lot of women find that, you know, they, they do want certain things, but they're not confident that they're allowed to ask for it. And, um, you know, again, I think that a lot of the younger generations coming up that women, the, the upcoming women are not necessarily going to have that exact challenge. I think they're going to be a lot more, um, assertive and vocal and that's, that's happening. Yeah. But, but it's not, we're not there yet. Well, I remember I'm 44 and I don't remember what, I don't know what year there was like this official women's movement and, you know, Gloria Steinem Mm -hmm. was, was around and Betty Friedan and, you know, writing their books and all that. I guess the fifties, I really should be more intelligent about this subject, but, and I think the reason I'm not is because by the time my generation came around, we kind of felt like we don't need that. Like feminism is like, an ant kind of an antiquated word at right. this point our generation doesn't use it not really i think maybe it's making a little bit of a comeback but i think most of our generation sort of think that's just an archaic philosophy i think maybe we need to coin a different phrase right right right, right. something more contemporary but i do kind of wonder you know maybe we do still need it you know, maybe there is still some social utility in that. Yeah, I think there is. And I think, I mean, I don't know if you experienced this as you, um, you know, came up in the practice of law, but some things that I, I definitely come across, there is a tremendous disparity in the courtroom, right? So in a litigation setting where it's an adversarial environment versus a transactional one where it's usually a bit more friendly or cooperative, um, I feel like there is definitely that tension of male versus female in that in that setting. Um, but I also sense and I have seen, I think generationally looking at it, let's say a female that's maybe in her 60s, um, I feel like because of the environment in which they came up, they're much tougher, 
much more abrasive, much more yeah. in your face, right? Whereas That's I think true. probably our generation, the 40-year-old generation, um, we're softer. We're still, at, we're, we're very assertive. We're not, um, you know, we're not mousy at all, but we don't have to be so over the top abrasive to get our point across. We can be um, just as efficient and effective being just assertive, uh, um, but but not, you know, to the point of being, you know, coined a bitch, you know, yeah. because, because I think that that's, I think that's just the, the environment in which a lot of that generation grew up where they really had to go over the top above and beyond to be taken seriously um, by their male counterparts. Whereas I think our generation, that's less the case, but we, we still have to let people know we're here, but it doesn't have to be done at that level. Do you think though that somebody in their 60s or older who did experience that as you said, do you think that if they were sitting at the table though that they would say, "You know what? That's where you're wrong because you think that that's not present anymore, but it is. It it's just looks present. different." Yeah, that's that's definitely true, but they definitely had to forge a path. We're forging a path for the next generation or the the next several generations. And it, it absolutely still exists, but there were also tons of people that, you know, for example, I, I was the, um, breadwinner in my first marriage. My ex-husband was a stay-at-home dad, right? So that was a very big shift in the traditional roles. Um, and that's happening as I came to learn talking to different people, that's, that's becoming less and less uncommon, um, yeah. So I think there are definitely more sensitivities out there and, and there's more deference given to um, the fact that, you know, don't make any assumptions, you know, somebody that is a female is not just home baking cookies and raising the kids. Yeah. That's not what's happening anymore. And don't assume the man is the one that makes more money because yeah. there are a lot of women out there that are making more money than the men. It's true. Um, so I think things are changing. I think it's always going to exist. I don't, I don't know that it will ever change, but I don't think we're going to see it. No, not in our lifetime. no, we're not going to see it, but it's, but, but the point I think is that, um, that shouldn't be a deterrent and that shouldn't be something that, you know, I hope that that women entrepreneurs out there, whatever discipline they decide to pursue, don't don't um, allow themselves to be intimidated by someone just because of their you know more dominant traits in their personality. Because it it shouldn't be something that gives somebody else leverage just because they're louder, more boisterous, or they pound the table, or they are just you know scary. Um, yeah. And and that's why I think it's great for folks like you know us. To be out there because I find that women really enjoy working with other women. They wanna they wanna have somebody um, that that gets them to represent yes. them, and I I think that's really really empowering and really exciting. And I represent you know I represent everybody. I represent tons of guys. Um, I love working with men, um, but I also really get excited about working with women and helping them flourish and giving them little tidbits of advice that I think um, will go a long way in their journey and their travels to just you know not feel so nervous about certain things. And if they do to, to call me, I mean, I, I don't, I, you know, I, I'm their legal advisor, but I also, you know, have lived on this earth for 42 years and have seen so many things and have done so many things. And I like for people to come to me about, you know, sometimes life advice and I help, I think, um, I would like to think that I help motivate them to do other things in their lives outside of just, you know, pure legal questions. I love hearing that because I think a lot of times when women, are in the same space, sometimes they can be really competitive with yeah. each other for some reason. And 
we've all experienced that. But I think at our very best, we're not. And we're exactly what you just, just described, that we help each other. We understand our experience in this world, especially as entrepreneurs, as just women trying to hustle. Right. And I, I don't want to say in a man's world, but to some degree it still is. Yeah. I'll just say it. Yeah. I want to end each podcast with a few questions just about you, some other things yeah. like your yeah. experience. So you might have answered some of these indirectly. What's the best business advice you ever got? I, I think it's what I did already answer indirectly. And that is to stay true to your vision. Yeah, that is really yeah. good advice. That is really, and that's probably a good life, yeah. life advice too. Absolutely. So that's the next question. What's the best life advice that you ever got? I'd say, you know, try everything. You know, what's the, what's the harm? We're only going through this. As far as I know, we get one go around, right? And, and you never want to look back and go, gosh, I, I should have done this when I had the opportunity and now the opportunity is gone and I may never get it again. I, I would have really liked to experience that. Just I know. I always hear that you don't regret something you did. You regret something you didn't. Yeah, do. absolutely. So who do you most admire and, and why? Um, I think it has to be my mom. Oh yeah. She's, she's badass. I mean, she's, it makes me cry to think about it. I mean, she Aww. came, <laughs> she came to this country not knowing anything. I mean, she, she met, met my dad, um, in South America. My dad didn't speak any Spanish. My mother didn't speak any English. Okay. So, and it was not like for papers type of a thing. Um, and she left her entire family. She came here, not knowing the language, not knowing the culture, not having a safety net, not nothing. Um, and she made something of herself and she, by the time I was in high school, she had enrolled herself in college. Um, she had no formal education, so she got her GED when she came to this country and, you know, she really, my parents bought their house, you know, outright. And most people I know are like 30 years to go, you know, they, they did a lot of things with themselves that I still aspire to do, but my mom really was the ringleader. I mean, my dad, you know, is tremendous and he's very, you know, supportive and he was the, the worker bee, the predominant, you know, breadwinner and, um, did the, the more, you know, traditional male things, but my mother really was the trailblazer. And, um, I see where you get your chutzpah from. Yeah, she, she's, she really had a tremendous, um, impact on, on, That's you know, awesome. who I am. Yeah. That's awesome. I sh maybe I should interview her. <laughs> <laughs> She'd love that. <laughs> okay. So what are the biggest challenges that I guess that you face now as an entrepreneur? Uh, just always trying to, well, because I don't have staff. Right. So it's always finding enough time. Um, as an associate, you're always told, you know, this is why days have nights and nights have days, right? There are always <laughs> more hours. So you just don't have to sleep during them. Um, so sometimes it just becomes, you know, there are days when it's really great and everything's very even and I can just, you know, you know, go see my kid's basketball game. And then I come back and send some emails and everything's honky dory. But then there are days where I'm like, oh my God, I have six deadlines. I have yeah. my phone is ringing off the hook. I just can't make everybody happy. My kids are starving. I have to go, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And so there are days where it just really gets crazy. And that's, um, probably my biggest challenge is just just managing it all because you don't get you, you can't plan it perfectly i mean this yeah. is everyone everywhere or entrepreneur or not like they're just not you can't just make everything perfectly go in the time slots that you want them to and just being able to stay present and focused and get through it without getting frazzled 
Yeah, and I think what I appreciate about being an entrepreneur is I get con total control, really, mm -hmm. of, of my schedule. So, like you said, you had dead. If you have deadlines, you don't have control over that. But I do have control over how I spend my time. Yeah, I don't think that I could ever go back to just having a nine to five job. Right. That I would feel like I was in a straitjacket. Yeah. Yeah. And I know some people like that. I go to work at, believe me, sometimes it sounds attractive. You go to work at nine, you leave at five, I'm done. That's right. it. There's Turned no it other off. problems. Yeah. But I don't think that I realistically, my, with my personality, I don't think I could go back to that. Okay. So I think you also said, uh, you talked about this already, but what do you feel is like your biggest reward as an entrepreneur? Oh gosh, there are so many. I just, you know, my, my worst day as an entrepreneur is still better than, you know, my highest high when I was working for somebody else. So, um, I just, the freedom, just yeah. total freedom. Yeah. And, and the beauty is that like anything you dream up, you can go for it. There's nothing stopping you. There is nothing in your way. You have to be willing to put in the work and make the sacrifice and stay, you know, true to the, whatever it is goal that you have. But um, anything you dream up is is in your hands. I you love know? that. I've always thought that as an entrepreneur and, you know, in the context of lawyers, I've always thought that having your own practice allowed you to nurture a certain quirkiness mm. because you don't have the constraints that you have when you work for someone else, especially in corporate America. Right where, you know, you have to show up at a certain time right. and take lunch at a certain time and you have to dress a certain oh, way. I you burned my suits when I left. <laughs> well, even, you know, ca wearing like casual Friday yeah. and wearing those stupid khaki pants that right. I hate. And <laughs> I do think that when I work, because I did work in corporate America for a little while and I, I don't know, I, I can't even believe that that was, I was the same person back then. I really wasn't. I was a different person, but there were all these rules. Yeah. And I followed them. I just did. I think it's great to get that training. I think it's good to have that because I do see, you know, I work, especially, in, I don't want to get into a specific industry because I don't yeah. want to badmouth anyone, but I, I do see where there are folks that come up in, um, you know, a certain area of work and they have never had that, um, grooming, let's say, or they've never had the experience of, you know, that, that IBM blue suit type of mentality. And I do think it gets a little haphazard, a little, yeah. a little too loosey goosey. And, and some folks don't know when to like draw the line of like, this is no longer professional. Yeah. And that, you know, so I think it's nice to have had that experience where you're taught and, and, you know, you're instructed to have to act in a certain way because then you kind of have a good balance of like, I want the freedom to do what I want to do, but I'm still going to do it in a respectable way. Yeah. And I'm still going to do it that's not going to be offensive to other yes. people. A certain sense of propriety. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So what would you tell your 20 year old self? Oh, my 20 year old self was so badass. I, <laughs> I love her. I wish I could go back to being her. Um, <laughs> do everything you're doing your Just 42 keep it year old self is pretty badass too <laughs> i love my 20 year old self was that i would think i was in italy that year and i i just you know i they they used to call me a, a gypsy because i was kind of a nomad i just you know i would take a plane 
anywhere and just go and just enjoy and meet people and you know and I and I love that and that's kind of how I um see myself as an entrepreneur too right it's like I get to go and take things where the wind blows like I I'll, yeah. I'll, I get to explore and if I decide it's not for me I back up and go in the direction right. I started you can always go back yeah so what would you tell other women who are thinking of starting your own law firm but they're too afraid don't be afraid don't be afraid you just have to have a plan once you um command the the plan even if it's not one that you ultimately follow and you deviate from it um once you kind of organize yourself right and you either you know back of a napkin have a business plan and you start thinking about what your initial costs are going to be and how are you going to you know start putting things don't just have this idea that's like amorphous idea that you just you know oh it's a dream start turning that into reality and and jotting things down even if it's an hour on a sunday morning with your you know latte and you just say this is the agenda i want like for the next four five six weeks every sunday i'm going to sit down for an hour and i'm just going to jot down what are my dreams what am i you know have a little notebook where you put all these things down start turning things into action items you know jotting down your ideas and then uh, and a game plan and you'll see how quickly something that seems larger than life and scary actually now becomes attainable and is within your reach and is something that you really feel like you can do. So just don't sit there on your hands and think I could never do that. Start doing something about it. I love that. That's a great way to end our show today. I love you. You're so awesome. <laughs> Likewise. Likewise. Thank you for sharing your intelligence and your wit with us today. That's really good advice. There's a lot of good sound bites out of this one. Awesome. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. <laughs>